Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. we got a jam-packed show and lots to talk about with the panel. Later on the show, we'll have BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver join us to take some questions. First up, though, the panel, a pleasure to welcome to the program uh, Global BC's Richard Zussman, the Vancouver Sons of Vaughn Palmer, and we're waiting to connect with uh, Global's Keith Baldry as well. We'll bring him on as soon as we can reach him by phone. Uh, but uh, good morning to you guys. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Good morning, Shane. <laughs> Excellent. Good morning. I hope Keith's plugged in his phone. That's sometimes the problem, that old charger on the cell phone. <laughs> By the way, Richard, I was hesitant to bring you on because I was worried you are going to spend the whole show gloating about your win. But the Royals lost last night. It doesn't feel so good anymore. I was at the game. The Royals are now out of the playoffs. But yeah. I, the, my beloved Royals did defeat your Kamloops Blazers, and you, you owe me some beer. Yes, I do owe you some beer. I'm still waiting for you to place an order. <laughs> uh, okay, guys, uh, why don't we jump right into it. Uh, this week there was what was billed at the time by uh, BC's Attorney General, uh, another money laundering revelation in the second phase of the German report. Uh, this one, uh, apparently a lack of federally funded policing resources in this province, tackling what we have learned lately is a pretty massive money laundering problem. Uh, but it took very little time for the Liberals' Mike Morris, a former public safety minister himself, to say, hey, this isn't new information. And soon after that, the current minister, Mike Farnworth, telling me he's been pushing the feds on this issue issue for a quote uh, some time now. So, Vaughn, what gives? Well, it's, uh, I think, more and more a sign of the political game that David Eby's playing on this thing. I mean, he doesn't miss an opportunity on the money laundering file to point out, I think it's true enough, that the previous government didn't do much about it and dropped the ball. Previous provincial government. But we see more and more evidence, Shane, as more and more of these reports come out, that an awful lot of the problem with money laundering is the federal government not pushing it very hard. Uh, a lot of the agencies that oversee this problem are federal. FinTrack, RCMP, Prosecution Service, Foreign Affairs, Tax Department. And it's really interesting to follow EB on this because... You know, as I say, he never misses an opportunity to talk about how the previous Liberal government did nothing on this file. But when you switch to talking about the federal government, well, you know, E.B. He put this report out this week. He said he's putting it out early to get more money out of Ottawa because it's an election year. But when I asked him, well, do you feel politically betrayed by the federal government on this? You never hesitate to complain about political betrayal provincially. Oh, no, no, he says, I'm not going to point fingers, right? Maybe they didn't know about this. The guy plays a double game on this, and it's amazing to me that he's been able to get away with it as long as he has. So on that point then, uh, Richard, I mean, E.B. did go on Twitter with sort of a, I don't know, a mini mea culpa this week saying basically in essence that perhaps it was an oversight on his part not looking into the staffing issue closely enough. Uh, is there any chance here that just some, what I would think is some pretty basic information sharing between E.B. and Farnworth isn't happening? No, I don't. I think when both Farnworth and Mike Morris say they knew there were staffing problems, I think Evie acknowledged that this week by saying he knew there were staffing problems as well. He just never imagined there were zero federal RCMP resources looking into money laundering. And, you know, as Vaughn laid out, there are lots of levels to this, different organizations that are looking into money laundering. I think the big zero number is what Evie was really hitting on. Uh, but, Shane, you make a good point. I think the, the dialogue needs to be open. And also, worth pointing out as well, going back to this finger-pointing at the Fed, uh, the, the federal liberals were really quick to point the fingers at the previous government in Ottawa, saying that the Conservatives 
basically suck dry these enforcement teams, and that's why there's a problem, and only they are the ones that are able to act. So, you know, clearly governments like to blame previous governments. It helps them at the polls. But, you know, I do think one of the reasons Evie's avoiding blaming the federal liberals is because ultimately their shared responsibility on the federal level for a lack of uh, enforcement and resources as well. Okay, well, let's talk about some of that finger-pointing because uh, the Liberals uh, are certainly doing that. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson jumping in this week among many who are saying, oh, listen, what's going on here? You guys aren't taking this seriously enough. You're not throwing people in jail. Uh, this is not new information, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, should, I mean, there's few issues here where that, that seem to anger the public. Real estate housing is one. I think money laundering is another. Should both the NDP and the Liberals be very, very careful about how they sort of treat this thing politically, Vaughn? Well, you know, I guess the, the thing is, what, what's in the public interest on this is stopping it, getting it under control, and what are the things that need to happen to do that? And we've seen some of them. I mean, obviously, we've stopped the bags of cash in the casinos. We've stopped some of the most obvious stuff. We haven't, I don't think, fully unraveled what to do about the real estate market. So we've got two reports which we haven't seen yet on that. We haven't seen those parts of the report. Um, there's also, however, been some very strong suggestion that the criminal code of Canada is part of the problem. It's very hard to charge and convict money laundering. You have to not just prove that the money came in in great wads of cash in Canada, you have to tie the specific transaction to a specific crime in another country. Not easy to do. Uh, Peter German, who did the, la the first report on this, said it would take a team of forensic accountants to trace the dollars in a single transaction. And that's what you need to get a conviction. So, you know, I, to some degree, the finger-pointing, politically, you're right, it's understandable. Go different levels of government are going to blame each other. Current governments are going to blame their predecessors. Um, and naturally, the public wants to see some heads roll over this. But actually... To stop the problem, the most useful stuff you can do is to listen to all these voices, put more resources into it, get going, and that probably does include toughening up the criminal code of Canada. So if we're focusing now on, on what to do about it, and uh, the issue this week has been policing, Richard, I mean, I asked Mike Farnworth this week, listen, you created independent authorities to deal with nuisance homes. Uh, you've now deployed your independent authority as of this week on the marijuana front to shut down illegal cannabis operations. Uh, what about a provincial unit or task force or something like that to tackle money laundering? If we're lacking the policing resources, maybe the province uh, needs to step in and take control of its own failure. He, so, he sort of dismissed that, but, but your thought? Yeah, well, there already is a branch of the RCMP that does this. There's 25 people that are supposed to work there, or 26 when you add uh, the one civilian, and only five of them are working, and they're all working on civil forfeitures. That was the thing we were talking about earlier. So I think the first step needs to be fund up that team to the max. If the province needs to kick in some dough to help the feds get there, sure, but it is a federal responsibility. We also have the CFSEU, we have JIGIT, we have these acronym organizations that are doing work on this. They continue to do their work. I think enforcement is important in all of this, but as Vaughn mentioned, I think the rule changes are more important. And as we start honing in on the issues around money laundering in the housing market, uh, there needs to be stricter rules imposed around, um, you know, how you purchase a home, where does that money come from, 
who are these buyers? The province is doing more on that front in terms of tracking who home buyers are. And then clearly when we start putting in those rules, you need the enforcement to go with that. So maybe that's where you invest. Uh, but I think Mike Fern was right. that the, it's, it's not worth investing in a provincial team because you need to have the federal help in all of this. Uh, there are bodies there that are supposed to do this work, and you just need to make sure that they have the resources to do the work. We don't need to start something new. We just need to ensure what we have is doing its job properly. Okay, so um, if we're if we're looking at policing, uh, the other issue is this public inquiry. We've talked about this ad nauseum on this on this show, uh, but the the provincial government is now looking at this issue. They're going to make some kind of a decision. We know what the public outrage level is. Um, to add a little bit of a twist to it, anyway, is uh, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, uh, Brad West this week saying that he's uh, quote unquote pissed off about this whole money laundering thing, and and what he need, wants is a Charbonneau Commission style public inquiry with all the powers to subpoena, to compel people to testify. He says it works wonderfully in Quebec. We need to do it here in BC. Uh, I believe we got Keith on the line now. So Keith, uh, to you, I mean, should we start talking about how to form up a public inquiry so that it tackles some of the problems we've been talking about or no? Well, it sounds like we're headed that way, but I think people um, better give their heads a shake if they think this is a magic solution. Uh, we Our experience in BC with public inquiries is if people want to lawyer up, they get a, a taxpayer-funded lawyer, and uh, those lawyers will fight tooth and nail to prevent people from testifying. So it's not a simple matter to say, oh, you've been subpoenaed, so you're going to testify. Uh, we had a missing women's inquiry headed by Wally Opal. The RCMP officers uh, had lawyers and just refused to testify, and that could easily happen here. The other thing in a public inquiry, it's not clear yet um, whether, the federal gov- whether the federal government will waive uh, privilege and allow the province to uh, subpoena and force federal employees to testify because they can't do that unless there's a waiver. And we haven't got that guarantee yet. And, and in terms of money laundering, there's so many elements here uh, from the federal government at play, whether it's FinTrack, whether it's the RCMP, whether it's immigration, those are all federal arms. A, province, a provincial, BC provincial inquiry doesn't have the power to go after those agencies. And so unless there's uh, huge cooperation from the feds, and there's signals that perhaps there will be from Bill Blair, um, uh, but unless there's that cooperation, that inquiry, I think, will be stalled in its tracks. And I know from talking to some new Democrats, they're worried that this story uh, uh, turns from one being one about money laundering to suddenly a year from now, two years from now, it's about a public inquiry commission that has stalled in its tracks, is spending millions of taxpayer dollars and has nothing to show for it. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions about public inquiries and, and the, the work that they do. Now, we missed you off the top, but I just want to toss this out because I'm interested in what you have to say about it. With this revelation this week uh, about a lack of policing resources and then having uh, both Mike Morris and, and then the current public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, come out and say, well, you know, this is something we've been working on for quite some time. Uh, the Liberals are pouncing on this. Uh, is this, is this uh, something that kind of raises your eyebrow or no? Well, no, I'm not necessarily. I think Les Lane has a good piece in the, in the Times Columnist about this, is that uh, from the police perspective, uh, they're all in on money laundering. I mean, they've got other things to worry about as well, whether it's the fentanyl crisis, whether it's uh, organized crime and gangs. I think actually if you ask the public, where would you like to see police resources deployed most? Would it be fighting gangs and fentanyl, or would it be fighting money casinos? I think most people would go with the gangs and fentanyl over money laundering, and I think that's reflective in the RCMP's priority list. 
Okay, uh, let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics. We'll continue our conversation with Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Richard Zussman on the other side. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Richard Zussman. Uh, interesting question period uh, this week, guys, and you're right there watching the whole thing uh, roll out. Uh, Daryl Plekis, the speaker, with some pretty epic uh, lectures to the MLAs in the House on uh, decorum and how to, they should conduct themselves, uh, chiding them on their behavior, saying that uh, they're embarrassing themselves in front of school groups. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so, Richard, what do you make of this, and is this, is this uh, the speaker? versus the House as a whole, or is this the Speaker versus the Liberals? I think it's the Speaker versus the world, Shane, and this is how Daryl Plekis has tried to make things, is, you know, he's here to change the culture at the B.C. legislature. Uh, he is a higher authority, and he has the power to do that. I think he's right that it's embarrassing, in some cases, the behavior of MLAs uh, during question period, but it is part of tradition. It's also one of those things where very few people actually witness it and ultimately makes a very small difference in most people's lives in terms of how these MLAs conduct themselves. So, you know, it would be nice to see some improved decorum, but I also think that wrestling is a big part of this and trying to rattle your opponents. But I don't know. I think Daryl Plekis versus the world is something that we're going to continue to see as he continues this crusade to change the way that things work at the legislature. So, Keith, I mean, the Speaker has a lot of power to play here, but he's he's lecturing things on, on I don't know, what I would sort of consider gray areas, of saying things like, uh, oh, if you're not listening uh, to what's being said, you don't get a supplementary question. Uh, we're getting into how do you define heckling? Uh, he says that it's, it's an interruption of the Speaker itself. Uh, it, uh, sort of a similar question. I mean, do you see these as valid complaints, or are we seeing some kind of, I don't know, weird behavior from the Speaker himself? Oh, I think it's weird behavior from the Speaker. I mean, uh, this is uh, the Westminster tradition, uh, whether it's the Mother Parliament in London or any other jurisdiction, is uh, in question period. And this is, it's unique to question periods. This doesn't happen usually in, you know, committee uh, debate or, you know, clause-by-clause debate or second reading. It's during question period, which is a raucous time, and ministers are put on account, uh, are, are held to account, and they're asked questions. And if they don't answer the question, then the opposition has the right to heckle them. Uh, sometimes it does get out of hand. The speaker's correct to call for order and ask everybody to calm down. But you just can't suddenly turn this place into a, a, you know, a chamber of silence where everybody just sits and listens to a minister prattle on without answering the question and just giving political nothingisms, which is what we saw from Shane Simpson, the social development minister, over and over again when he was asked questions about differing uh, uh, pay raises for union and non-union employees in the social services sector. So Plekis is, uh, I think, he, he's a strange speaker. It's, it's a, it, the other thing here, Shane, he's completely one-sided. He's very partisan. He, does, he never will ever chastise the NDP side, uh, or rarely does so. It's always about the Liberals, which he has a terrible relationship with. So we have a situation where the Speaker is very partisan, uh, very one-sided, and is not beholden to tradition. And it's, uh, it's a frustrating situation for the opposition, but I don't think it's going to end. 
Yeah, and to that point, Vaughn, I mean, if this is a window into sort of the relationship between the Speaker and the B.C. Liberals, which has been, um, and probably an understatement, a bit of a rocky road, uh, it, Keith's right. I mean, he's he seems to be really targeting one side of the House over the other, and it really kind of caught me some of the stuff when he was stepping in in, in in question period at least once this week where you could hear from the Liberal side just like, you know, that what's going on? Where's that written down? All this kind of stuff. Is, is it, in fact, one-sided? Is this a relationship yeah. issue? Very, very much so. I mean, question that Mary Pollack, the House Leader, put to him is, are you saying that heckling is not going to be allowed? And he, he comes back and says, no, no, I'm not saying that, but you can't interrupt the Speaker. Well, what the hell is heckling if not interrupting the Speaker? Look, if people want to see respectful, dignified, informed debate in the legislature, it happens every day. In estimates debate, tune-in committee debate, legislation, clause by clause, budget items examined line by line, we're talking about the brief, four times a week, half-hour theater, which is what it is, political theater, that is question period. And yes, it does get out of hand here once in a while. Past speakers, however, have recognized that this is a problem in parliaments everywhere. You try to rein them in, you put them on notice, but if you want to be treated with respect when you try to do that, you do it in an even-handed way. You recognize that both sides are guilty of bending the rules and provoking this stuff. And Plex is so... He doesn't even try. He doesn't even pretend to be even-handed. The funny thing about him, and I, I've written a piece in The Sun about this today, is he claims he's an independent speaker, and he asks for extra money because he's an independent. The House has given him... $114,000 a year extra in his budget, a 30% increase in his budget because he's, quote, an independent. Yet, you know, I've covered a dozen speakers, Shane, in my time in Victoria, Keith, about the same. This guy is one of the most partisan speakers I've ever seen, and yet he claims to be an independent. Yeah. Uh, Richard, uh, speaking of the speaker, a much more toned-down Lamsey meeting recently. I, you know, there wasn't a whole lot on that agenda, and especially with the Beverly McLaughlin investigation going on, I've asked the Speaker's office numerous times whether they have done an interview yet uh, with Beverly McLaughlin, uh, and they have not responded. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see when her report comes out uh, in May uh, what she's found in terms of the Speaker's first report, as well as the response from Gary Lenz and Craig James, and then the rebuttal from Daryl Plekis. So. You know, I don't expect to see fireworks at Lampsy until after that. I think it would be seen uh, in a not very good light from Beverly McLaughlin if the speaker was going off uh, and doing things to sort of advance the story while she was still looking into the first report. So don't expect Lampsy to be too exciting until uh, after that report is brought back. And then after that, all bets are off. I think we could see chaos again. But, you know, back to the point that both Vaughn and Keith are making really quickly, I, I think... Part of this partisanship from Plekis is though the, the legislature is, the waiting is, is off balance, considering that the government's the one not answering the questions. As Keith referred to Shane Simpson, you know, he's not answering the questions. So the liberals are going to get scolded more often because they're the ones that are heckling more often because there's a lot more reason to heckle. So, uh, you know, I understand that the challenges and issues with Plekis, but I don't see him being... That as non-partial as I think both Keith and Vaughn think he is. 
Uh, final word to you, Keith, and just back to the Lamsey meeting. I talked to Farney this week, and uh, if there was anything close to a, a sigh of relief over a calm meeting, it came from him when I asked him about it. But uh, where, where do you think the next shoe drops in the legislature spending fiasco? Well, I think, uh, you know, to Richard's point, uh, everybody's waiting for Beverly McLaughlin to finish her work, and she's lowered the temperature uh, at the, in, the, uh, in the House uh, and at LAMPSI, the Legislative Assembly Management Committee meeting. Um, so we're waiting for her report, and really everything will flow from that, uh, or from whenever the special prosecutors come in. I mean, that's the other thing that's out there, out in the cold. Nobody knows what they're doing. That's a completely separate investigation and a much more, potentially a much more serious one. So barring the special prosecutors suddenly rearing their heads and, and interjecting into this thing, we're waiting for Beverly McLaughlin to come back with a report. I have no idea what she's going to say. But uh, I think one thing, she has sort of, for now, neutered the Speaker's office from really being out there uh, investigating things on their own and sort of having everybody in a state of suspense. So in terms of the next June drop chain, I, it, the next June will drop was Lawson's report, which will come back in May. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up in the news, and we'll uh, continue our talk with Keith Vaughn and Richard right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Richard Zussman. Uh, guys, a pretty fascinating housing battle is shaping up. I know Maple Ridge is sort of ground zero for it at the moment, but uh, there's uh, different versions or aspects of it uh, throughout Metro Vancouver and even on Vancouver Island. Uh, but in Maple Ridge, a community that's grappled a long time with a homeless problem and a tent city is now going to war over having uh, social housing forced upon it. Uh, Keith, how do you sort of read the magnitude of this problem and sort of the, the pain in the neck it, it is for the NDP government. Well, you know, for for the NDP being in opposition for years, it was easy to seize on issues like this and 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 basically put all the blame on the government, and that's the way it works. Now the NDP is in power, and they are discovering, much to their horror, that they are now the ones responsible for fixing these messes that exist in places like Maple Ridge, Nanaimo, and growing in other areas around the province, and, and particularly in Metro Vancouver. Where it's becoming really problematic for the Democrats, and where they're getting very nervous about this, is that come the next election, the ridings uh, in suburban Vancouver are the ones that will determine, uh, likely determine the outcome of the next election. Maple Ridge is the home of two ridings that are traditionally very close races between the NDP and the B.C. Liberals and before them the Social Credit Party. Now the, the pendulum has swung against the NDP in these areas. Uh, the general population of Maple Ridge are not fans of tent cities or homeless people, and those are the people now that the NDP are, are basically aligning themselves with, and that's a problem for a government uh, like, like the NDP, and that's put these ridings into play come the next election, and that's why I think there's you know, I asked John Horgan about it yesterday, and he's getting a little, you can just tell he's getting frustrated about this. He's frustrated with the council and the mayor in Maple Ridge, who are basically declaring war on the provincial government on this. They don't want a solution foisted on them, like modular housing. In Nanaimo, the police chief there has told city council that since the NDP's modular housing model has come into play to replace the 10th city there, the number of police calls have jumped something like 250% that, that where they have to attend the, this modular housing because in, contained in this, of course, are so many drug problems and mental health problems. It's a terrible situation. There's no easy fix. 
John Horgan is right to say that uh, there's no magic solution, but the, everybody's looking for a government solution. And I don't think one can be provided. So this is a critical issue for the NDP come the next election. And uh, Tivon, I know you've looked into this uh, specifically in Nanaimo, but one of the issues, as Keith Mitch has mentioned, is these uh, crime rates uh, in Nanaimo particularly. The opposition uh, figured they had Housing Minister Selena Robinson in a bit of a vice on that issue. But it is a bit of a NIMBY argument as well. Uh, what's your read on the crime rates argument? Well, you know, I think the the NDP mayor of Nanaimo, Leonard Krogh, has been very good on this subject, right? I mean, he originally said, look, this was an emergency situation. These two modular housing projects in Nanaimo were basically imposed on very short notice on the community, and the neighbors weren't prepared for it, so there wasn't proper consultation. And Krogh is now saying... Uh, look, the resources aren't there to deal with the problem. So, I mean, that's the answer. It's a much slower process. It involves a lot of consultation and support from the local community for the choices of the location. And then it is absolutely critical that all the resources are there 24-7 to make sure you don't get a rash of break-ins in the neighborhood. You don't get people being afraid to walk their kids to school or drop their children off at child care. If you look at the ones that have worked fairly well around the province, and there are some that have, what you find is a consistent pattern. There was a lot of consultation ahead of time, the council bought into it, and the resources were put there. If you look at the ones that have gone sideways, and Nanaimo is a bad one, and I can see the concern in Maple Ridge is that that's what's going to happen, it's because of lack of consultation and lack of resources up front. And to you, Richard, I mean, one of these, and obviously there's there's a lot of politics being played here, and it's a mess of different issues, um, but there's a problem. We have homeless people, we have addicts, uh, we have people that need to be housed and social issues to deal with, mental health issues to be dealt with. I mean, part of this, to me, the true tragedy of this is in all the finger-pointing and the political kind of brouhaha, uh, the actual issue itself isn't being paid particularly close attention to. I mean, you got to house them, you got to put them somewhere, and everyone says, sure, just not where I live. Yeah, and I think people are paying to attention to it on the ground. And part of the challenge as well is the misinformation that's been out there. I think uh, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson hasn't helped in all of that. Uh, there are supports that are going to these modular housing units. And they may not be in the location in which the Maple Ridge mayor wants it, or it may have been too fast in Nanaimo. But the province is doing their job to get the resources that these people need. And addressing the homeless issue is obviously complex for both the reasons that Keith and Braun, uh, Vaughn brought up. It's a, it's a broad issue that hits on people with mental health issues. Uh, as well as addiction issues, but I think this government has put a greater commitment on the homeless population that we've seen in this province in a long, long time, and this modular housing unit is just part of that shape. All right, finishing up with a, just a quick question on different issues to each of you. Uh, first to you, Keith, uh, MLA salaries up 2.7% uh, as of April 1. Uh, we are all aware of what's going on in negotiations on the public sector front. Uh, I know the BCTF is jumping all over this, saying, hey, how can you say it's unaffordable to give public sector unions more than 2% a year and look at what you guys are doing? Well, there's only 87 MLA, so it's not like it's a big ding on the public purse, but the optics aren't uh, terribly good. Uh, uh, the MLA's uh, salaries are indexed to uh, inflation and, and the cost of living, um, so it's a, it's a bit embarrassing. However, I don't think it's going to change a heck of a lot necessarily at negotiating tables. There's, there's more contracts have been signed this, this week, as a matter of fact, for the 2-2-2 two, two, and two 
a wage mandate. I think the TF has more of an argument if they look at the doctor settlement, um, because that involves a large pool of people, thousands of doctors. They got more than two, two, and two because they got a signing bonus. Uh, of $7,500, and they also got a whole bunch of other little little increases in different different funds and different um, fees they can charge and premiums they can uh, be paid. So uh, the TF should look at the doc. I've written about this before and talked about it before. The, the doctor's settlement uh, is a very lucrative one. It goes beyond the two, two, and two. Uh, the, what the MLA's got is going to have no bearing on the teacher talks. It's, I don't blame the TF for raising this issue and, and casting light on this, but at the end of the day, they've got more to argue for when they look at the, what the doctors are getting. And Vaughn, to you, uh, on the government uh, and consultation side, there's a couple of issues out there that seem to be plaguing the NDP. Uh, one of them is the caribou issue in sort of the Peace River northern BC area, which has enraged people up there to a degree I've not seen in a long time. Uh, and the government has essentially consulted with some, but not with the whole, and has now given uh, the very shortened timeline there to a lesser degree the land title issue here in Kamloops, where First Nations are really, really angry. To date, zero consultations, although they have been promised. Uh, is the NDP shooting themselves in the foot here or no? Well, I think on the caribou thing, this one needs a lot more attention. This is really serious what they're proposing to do up there. And yeah, they worked away on this plan in secret, Shane, for almost a year, and they dumped it on the region with four weeks of consultation. And the forest industry to just pick one issue with this lack of consultation. Forest industry representatives up there say this plan calls for setting aside such a large amount of timber that no longer you'll be able to work or develop, uh, it probably means minimum loss of 500 jobs and the closing of at least one mill. That has a huge impact in that region. You're right about the outcry. I think Chetwin, they had a meeting last week, a fifth of the population in Chetwin turned out to give the government heck on this. And I think there are other options that they should be looking at. Uh, It's not even clear from the research, Shane, that shutting down the forest industry in this region will do enough to save the caribou. I think it's a lot more promising to look at some of the, yes, controversial things like the wolf cull, uh, killing 100 wolves a year, panning up the pregnant caribou cows, uh, sequestering the calves to protect them, perhaps le- relocating parts of the herd. That stuff is controversial as well, but I think it would go over much better in the north than, oh, by the way, we're going to close one of your mills and lay off 500 people. Yeah, for sure. Uh, final word to you, Richard. Uh, the 420 protest, quote-unquote, because I don't think it's much of a protest anymore in this day of legalization, but in the past this has been held a huge event in Vancouver. Uh, it has floated the rules, floated the bylaws. It has not gotten any licensing. Uh, it's not done any of the hoops, jumped through any of the hoops that other similar events would have to do to set up something, uh, and they seem intent on maintaining this particular model even in this day of legalization. And I'll note this morning uh, the mayor of Vancouver has uh, decided that he's going to allow them to skate for one more year and then, quote-unquote, that's it, which I don't think is a good decision. But is it time for these people in the marijuana side of things to wake up and realize they're just part of the regular crowd now? Yeah, it's, it's Shane, you and I both lived in Vancouver, I think, when 420 sort of hit its peak about four or five years ago, when they first started setting up tents and selling products and setting up stages. And it feels like a festival like you would have for Pride Week or for the fireworks. And so they should be treated exactly like that. And you mentioned those hoops. The organizers of 420 
should do everything the city and police ask them to do in order for them to legitimize themselves and be treated like an actual festival. It's a farce that they believe that they're a protest. They are draining resources. Sure, they cover some of the costs, but they also create a huge amount of damage to Sunset Beach. They wreak havoc during that day for people who live in the neighborhoods. And also, they bring in a lot of money. And they obviously have a lot of money if they can pay for someone like Cypress Hill, a rap group, to come to Vancouver. So, you know, they need to start acting like grown-ups in all of this and behave like other festivals. And I think Vancouver can celebrate them and see it as a celebration of marijuana legalization and they could protest some of the things they don't have yet, but they need to start acting like some of these bigger festivals rather than this rogue festival that I think gives marijuana smokers and users a bad name if they show up before 20 or if they don't. Absolutely. Gentlemen, as always, a real treat. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, Shane. There we go. That's Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Richard Zussman. A quick break on Inside Politics. On the other side, Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back. Real pleasure to be joined on the program this morning by the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Good morning, Andrew. Morning. How are you? Very well. It's uh, it's a good day. The legislature has risen for two weeks, and we get to catch up with our energy levels before we resume a couple of weeks from now. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen. Um, amid the the raucous political theater of question period, I know that your party continues to stand up and chip away on the money laundering front. I'm curious, uh, a, what you think of this week's revelations of uh, lackluster policing resources in this province, and b, ultimately, uh, this is an issue that people are very very angry about. I think uh, regardless of where they cast their poll in the political spectrum. Uh, so what do we need to do about it? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, first off, uh, we'd like to see the rest of the Peter German report. Uh, we, are, we, are, we have not changed our position. That We are pressuring government for a full public inquiry into this. There are so many outstanding questions. We've only seen chapter one which of the report, or one chapter of the report, rather, that suggests that uh, uh, federal government did not have the resources necessary on the ground here. In fact, there were no resources in essence, is what it suggested. Um, one of the things that I'd like to see is the, the B.C. Liberals, who were in government, claimed that they had taken steps. Um, Mr. Eby has asked them to waive cabinet privilege and to provide information as to what, uh, what issues they took forward. That has not been forthcoming, and they have not done so. That is troubling to me. Um, we, uh, that's one of the reasons why we think a full-scale public inquiry is necessary. Okay, so uh, the decision is yet to be made in the public inquiry front, um, but if we go down that road, I mean, the drawbacks are, as, as we mentioned on this show a number of times, it is uh, basically an orgy of lawyer billing. It's hugely expensive. We've seen public inquiries go off the rails, take years, and, and essentially accomplish next to nothing. Um, what do we do knowing this to, if we go down the public inquiry road, how do we make sure that it's nonpartisan, that it's got the muscle it needs, and that it actually accomplishes something instead of being a travesty. We can look to other jurisdictions and other public inquiries as guidance. You know, the Charbonneau Commission, we had the 
scandal out in Quebec uh, with respect to contract awards as well. So there's a number of examples that have, have been much more constrained. I, I think a lot of it is set by who you have uh, in charge of the public commission and the, the terms of reference for that commission and ensuring that they are uh, given the resources they need. I, I, you know, honestly, we can pretend this is not an issue that we want to save a few, you know, even if it costs a million bucks or two million or three million. We're talking about a billion dollars a year of money laundering. This is a lot of money. There, there, this doesn't happen uh, without there being, you know, uh, more than, you know, one rogue individual showing up with uh, a bag of money. It's, there, there's something systemic here, and we need to get to the bottom of it. We know that the uh, recently published in the U.S., uh, we were, we were, Tend as a, a, a country of choice for money laundering, that is Canada, BC in particular. Uh, this is not a brand we want, and uh, you don't simply get to the bottom of these things by chasing, you know, rabbits down down holes here and there. We need this is a systemic problem that has led to a crisis in affordability in Metro Vancouver, which has now spilled over to places like Kelowna and Victoria and Nanaimo, and and we we really need to get to the bottom of this. On the policing side, because one of the frustrations I have is, and there's a lot to get angry about here. I mean, uh, I reflect back on Peter German's first report and the line about how they've used casinos as laundromats, uh, and it goes beyond that to the opioid overdose crisis, real estate, housing. We're going to get some details in that with the second phase of the report. But um, public inquiry aside, uh, what do we need to do on the police and the prosecution front to go down and chase these guys down and throw them in jail? Because there's been a lackluster effort to do that, and on the prosecution side, any effort has fallen apart. Well, one one of the things that, um, you know, the the, the province has outlined the concern with federal uh, FinTrack, for example, that's the financial tracking system, and the the teeth that they're given to follow through with RCMP support. There's other steps that can be done. I note in British Columbia, I'm quite uh, impressed with the Attorney General's uh, approach towards strengthening the civil forfeiture abilities of of the province, so I suspect we'll see uh, some additional targeting of uh, profits of criminal uh, criminal activity through the civil forfeiture application. That is a good, that's good you know you you may get mired into uh, a uh, political uh, you know case that goes many years but civil forfeiture is also a key tool uh, again one of the things of the public inquiry is is when when a safe place is created for people to actually come and speak the floodgates begin to open and i think that that is why it is clear we need to have people know that there's a safe place for them to share their stories i mean I've been told stories by people that you know, I don't know whether they're true or not. Therefore, I'm not willing to relay those stories further. However, you know, a public inquiry can start to probe and test that to see whether or not if person A says this is what occurred, they can then call in person B and, and challenge that. This is what needs to happen. And, and, you know, we can't have the rumor mill of I'm told this, what do you think, out it goes. We need to get the evidence and we need to prosecute accordingly. And I, I frankly, I think there's, there's no excuse at this stage. It's the scale of it is so bad that uh, to not move down that public inquiry route. Um, the uh, there was news uh, recently up in the Kitimat area about the Chevron LNG project up there adopting e-drive, becoming an electronic drive, hailing that as a game changer. Uh, it'll reduce emissions, all that kind of stuff. I know where you stand in the LNG industry as a whole, but on the issue of an e-drive LNG project, is this something that you would look at as sort of supporting, or, or does that still fall into the hell? No, we're not doing that. Well, the, the problem here is it's just a, a 
a gong show of hypocrisy. We have, we know that well over 80% of British Columbians want the province to take and show leadership in dealing with both uh, mitigating the emissions as well as adapting to climate change. We're seeing the evolution of, of that will reflected in the Clean BC, which is what the BC Greens spent an awful lot of time working on to ensure that dealing with climate change is viewed as an economic opportunity rather than just simply a big frightful thing. That is embodied in Clean BC. Unfortunately, the uh, drive to try to uh, compete in a market which we can't really compete in because the prices don't work. We have embodied a generational sellout in what we've given LNG Canada. Now, LNG Canada, one of the things that they've been promised is an exemption from future increases in the carbon tax because they claim, and now the government's rewriting what uh, world-leading cleanest LNG standards are. Oh, it turns out electric drives are the cleanest standard, and we have a, a rather large facility in Texas that's using electric drives. Electric drives mean you use electricity to compress LNG into a liquid form. Um, BC, so that, that would mean LNG Canada, if should be paying the carbon tax going forward. Chevron's coming in with, a, with kind of a, an interesting uh, issue here. Is that they're proposing another, uh, an electric drive system, which, which must trouble LNG Canada. To be honest, to the people in the Kitimat Terrace Valley, Valley, what I would be troubled with is this notion and talk that you are going to put more point sources of, of not only greenhouse gas emissions, but sulfate, sulfate emissions in your valley. I mean, this is it's just madness, right? This is a, an airshed that cannot take the additional increase that is being proposed there in terms of air quality. And there was a study that essentially reflected that. So, so we have, you know, it's almost like we're playing out in real time the Lorax as we race for the bottom economics, try to give away resources, not focus on value added, not try to build in our strengths. We simply do not compete on an inter international market, a natural gas market, because our resources are expensive to access. They're very deep, they're very expensive, they're, they're very energy intensive, and to access them is inconsistent with our greenhouse gas targets. So, you know, rather than chasing for the bottom and giving away this resource, we're not going to earn anything from it and bring in for temporary foreign re workers to do it and then have it built offshore so you can ship it on tidal. This isn't, this isn't stimulating our economy. This is about us giving away a resource to a multinational with uh, essentially to deliver what Christy Clark couldn't. So the whole, the whole discussion here is, is ill-posed. What we should be discussing, and the BC Greens recognize, that there is, there's uncertainty in interior and northwestern BC about uh, the future of, of work. We recognize that. We understand that. We can't continue to do more of the same. And this is why, you know, the irony that we see B uh, the B.C. Liberals elected time after time in rural and, and northern B.C., it's, it's so ironic because the, the, the economic troubles that that region is facing is precisely because of the 16 years of focus into more of the same kind of approach. You can't do more of the same in today's global be smarter, cleaner, and more efficient. And that is the focus of us. We recognize the importance of bringing prosperity to all regions of BC. We have a plan to do that through using our strategic strength, uh, bringing manufacturing back to BC. We should be using our clean resources to encourage that sector uh, because we can attract and retain the best and brightest in the world and business in the world because of the beauty of our province and the, and the resources, both people resources and natural resources we have. And we're out of time. Andrew, always a pleasure. That went by quick. Thank you for uh, taking some time this morning. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thanks, Shane. And that's Andrew Weaver, leader of the B.C. Green Party, and that brings to an end this edition of Inside Politics. We'll see you again here on Radio 1L soon. 12.30 Merritt, 13.40 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 6.10 a.m. Local News Now.